The reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. All right. Uh, some of you may be wondering just what a study break is. It just it depends on the pastor. Uh, not every pastor necessarily takes them. Uh, I've been doing it for 18 years. I just it's a chance to just get away for five or six, sometimes seven days, uh, without distractions to be able to read and write. Um, I read a lot. Um, and, but for the most part, uh, the reading that I do tends to be um, very quick and informational rather than formational. When I get away, I'm in rural Wisconsin, so uh, not a lot of distractions. And so I'm able to read and think, read slowly and think about things and be able to start putting things together. And so generally speaking, when I get back from a, a study break, I've been doing this 18 years and it's really helpful to me. But when I get back, for the next, oh, two months or so, um, m- my sermons tend to be, um, well, if you, if you like my 32-minute as opposed to my 42-minute sermons, you're going to be disappointed the next couple of months. So uh, it'll probably be a little bit more, um, but it's really helpful. Um, also, one other thing I want to mention, uh, just what's been going on lately with, uh, the, the, just again, the, the rise in the school shootings. And, and the national debate that we're having on that. And, and I just want to remind everybody that in the, in the midst of that, the, the church needs to be praying and the church needs to be humble about what we can actually do and not walking around telling everybody else what to do. So we need to be praying and we need to be humbly submitting to what it is that that God is leading us to do in, in the midst of all of this. Um, my tendency is, frankly, and this is, this is the darkness in my heart, to look at um, these school shootings and think, eh, my kids are out of uh, middle school and high school. doesn't really matter. But it matters. It matters uh, to virtually everybody that's in this congregation because we're a young congregation with young kids. So we need to be praying about that. Let me pray about that before we get back into Ephesians. Um, Lord God, we are, um, we are just witnessing um, more evil and, and chaos, uh, and, and we're a little bit beside ourselves as to what, what to do. And, and really, if there's anything good that can come from this, it should be that it will drive people to you. More important than anything, it would be to drive Christians and the church to you. Uh, and so let us... Let us be humble about that, and let us listen to you and your spirit in the midst of that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So we have been going through Ephesians, and 
Today marks the end of the first half of Ephesians. This is the 18th message that we have in Ephesians. Uh, and, and we're going to actually take 21 or 22 weeks to go through the second half of Ephesians. But we wrap up the first half, and we'll talk more about the difference between the first half and the second half uh, next week. Uh, and what we're doing is we're continuing to look at this prayer that Paul prays um, that, that wraps up the first half. Uh, Cody looked at the first uh, larger portion of that prayer last week, which, by the way, I thought was terrific with all the, all the different prayers and, and, and everything. Um, really, really uh, important stuff. And Cody also made the important distinction about how um, he, he's referring back to chapter 2 when he starts this prayer, that there was sort of this interlude that Paul goes into in the, in the first half of Ephesians uh, chapter 3. And, and so he's finishing the prayer, and as I read this prayer, one of the things that just strikes me is the confidence that is exhibited by Paul as he prays and writes this prayer, that the confidence is supreme. You just feel it coming off the pages, at least I do. And why is there such confidence? And there's only one uh, logical answer, and it's right there embedded in the prayer. It's because it's all about the power of God. It's about Jesus and his ability to save and to sanctify us and to empower us to be able to do ministry. And he wraps up this prayer. I'm looking kind of at the benediction portion of the prayer. He wraps up the prayer by saying, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, or the Greek word could be translated exceedingly more than all that we ever think or imagine. It's him who is able to do more than we can think or imagine. And we can think and imagine some pretty incredible things, and God can do even more than that. It's all about him. And as I said, these verses that I get, 20 and 21, are the benediction. I'm actually going to go back to 19 in order to, uh, and, and kind of pick that up a little bit to give us some context. But 20 and 21 is like the benediction. It's like when you're praying, and you've been praying for three or four minutes, and then you can kind of sense that, that it's time to wrap up the prayer, and you start to say things like, you know, well, God, you are the creator God of this universe, and you, you are uh, filled with majesty, and you're sovereign, and, and, you, and you save people, and you empower people, and we're so thankful for Jesus on the cross, and, and it's to you that we give all the glory, and we pray that in Jesus' name. You can kind of get that sense when a prayer is wrapping up, and that's what Paul is doing here. It's his benediction. And verses... Uh, 20 and 21 come on the heels of this prayer that, that, it is, that, that Paul just magnifies God's love for us through Jesus Christ. This prayer is rooted in God's love, and that's a big deal. And it's part of why we can pray, as Paul does, with such confidence, is because of his love. The love of Christ is so strong that he died in order to give us an invitation, to give you and I an invitation to the greatest wedding banquet that's ever going to take place. And that is going to be the reconciliation and restoration of all things in the new Jerusalem when Jesus comes again. And we're going to be there. We get to be at that. What, think of the best wedding feast, wedding banquet reception you've ever been to in your life. It does not even hold a candle to what it's going to be like at this wedding uh, feast. And there are a couple of interesting things rhetorically about verses 19 through 21. So looking at verse 19, Paul wants us to know something that surpasses knowledge. He wants us to know something that we can't know. Is that what he's saying? 
something that's impossible. He wants us to know about the love of Christ, but it's impossible to know at a level that we'll ever be able to understand. What does he mean by that? I would suggest that it's the power of this word agape. You've probably heard this word before. There are many Greek words that can be used as love. You and I, in English, we tend to use one word for love, and depending on the context, it can mean so many different types of love. There are so For you and I, there are so many loves, lusts, and, and affections that are rooted, here you go, rooted in the worthiness of the person or the object being loved, right? Okay? When, when, when I say that I love pizza, okay, that's not an unconditional love. I love pizza because there's something worthy about pizza uh, of being loved. It tastes good, okay? If pizza didn't taste good, I wouldn't love it. So when we talk about love, the vast majority of the time, if not all of the time, even when it means loving somebody else, we are gen- generally talking about the worthiness of the person or the object being loved. This love that Christ has for us, though, is different. It's, spe- it's a specific word that describes a different kind of love. It's, it's different than how we usually think of love. This love is completely unconditional. It's totally selfless, and it comes not from any worthiness that any object or person has for being loved, but rather it comes from the character of the one that's doing the loving. It comes specifically and exclusively from the character of the one who is doing the love. It's a love not driven by the worthiness of that which is loved. This is so important to understand. For instance, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we are to love our enemies he uses the word agape. He could have used five, six other different uh, English, uh, uh, Greek words for love. He specifically uses the word agape, unconditional love, as, as if he's admitting even that he agrees. He's saying, I realize that from your perspective, you find absolutely nothing worthy in your enemies to love, but you need to love them anyway. And the reason is because that's how God, through me, has loved you. God loves us in spite of us, not because of us. He loves us in spite of our sin. Scripture says, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. That is unconditional, compassionate, selfless love. And it is out of the overflow of the love that God has for us and the character of Christ imputed to us that we are then asked by God to love compassionately and unconditionally. It's the love that Christ has for the church. Whenever it talks about the love that Jesus has for the church, it's agape love. Now, here you go. Let me ask a question. Is the church always lovable? This is not a trick question. Is the church always lovable? No, we are not. Christ loves us anyway. We are far from perfect, and yet he loves us. Here you go, Ephesians 5.25. We're going to eventually get there in a couple of months. Where Paul says, husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He uses the word there, agape. He didn't use eros, which means sexual love. He didn't use any of the other loves that he could have used. He uses agape. Husbands, you are to love your wives unconditionally and selflessly. 
That's how you're to love your wives, because that's how Christ loves you, and you are a figure of Christ in this. And, and, and you're not a figure of Christ as I'm in charge, you're a figure of Christ as I am going to sacrifice my life for you. I'm going to love you unconditionally. But now, think about this. This means, here you go, this means that you have to love your wives even when they're unlovable. And I know it's hard for some of you wives to believe this, but there are times when you are not lovable. And that's when you need the gospel love of your husband more than any other time. If, if, if Paul or Jesus were calling us to love when you're lovable, well, any schmuck can do that. Anybody can do that. It's the one who loves when you're not lovable. That's a gospel love, and that's what he's calling us to, and that's that agape love. And we can do that because we were unlovable and yet loved by God. That is a love that is beyond knowledge and comprehension. It's a love not rooted in the worthiness of that which is loved. Here's the second rhetorical thing about these verses. God takes, and this is from verse 21, God takes what we can think, imagine, or do way, way, way beyond. Far, far more abundantly, far more exceedingly than anything that you and I can think or imagine. Uh, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon says, it, says that, that Paul often tries to describe something in finite moral human language because that's all he has. That's all he has access to is finite um, mortal human language. He often tries to describe something that simply cannot be fully described because he's describing the eternal. And so Paul seemingly fumbles for words. So I want you to stop and think about this, what Paul's trying to do here. Take the greatest thing that you have ever experienced in your life. What The greatest thing that you have ever experienced in your life. Maybe you won the championship. Or, or you closed the biggest deal of your life. Or you got that promotion that you had been working so hard for. Or you popped the question and she said yes. Or thankfully he didn't bother to ask you. Whatever the greatest experience in your life is, whatever that is, the happiness, the joy, the fulfillment, the sense of achievement that you felt at the apex of that experience, at the apex of that experience, in that moment, the Stanley Cup championship, I had to throw a hockey reference in there, in that moment is but a drop in the Pacific Ocean of how much more God can do for us. It's not even, I can't even describe it. It's not describable. Um, Bill Hybels, pastor and author, uh, he was preaching once about 20 years ago, and this had a profound effect on me. And, and apparently I didn't listen to him because I'm, I'm still guilty of what he was talking about. But he says, he said, our problem with God generally is that we don't think big enough. We, we major on the minor things. We think really big about the minor stuff, but we don't think big enough about the big things. He's, and, he, and he describes it this way. He says, our problem generally, is that we come to God with a thimble. And we say, God, can you fill this thimble? And Heibel says we should be bringing a five-gallon bucket to God and asking him to fill that bucket. Uh, this play, I saw this play itself out uh, in my life with this property. When I, when I came to Redemption six and a half years ago, I was given a uh, by Tyler Johnson, our lead pastor, I was given a job description to be the lead pastor, and then at the bottom, it also had something that was added that not every, that not every lead pastor in redemption gets, 
We were renting property at the time, and we were all kind of confined in that Presbyterian church over at 42nd and Thomas. And down at the bottom it said, uh, find affordable property big enough for this congregation in Arcadia. <laughs> okay. And, and, and we tried and tried and tried, and then as, as I got sort of exasperated and frustrated with the process, I started looking at property outside of Arcadia. We went, we went uh, up onto Shea and to Cactus. We were looking around up there. We looked at that uh, Assemblies of God church that's still for sale on the 51 just north over there by Shea. We looked at that three different times. I was, I was, thinking with a, I was praying and thinking with a thimble. Along comes Cody. Cody's been with us about a year by that point. He's on the elder board. He's there all three times when we're looking at that church. And he finally just looks around and he says to the elders, he said, you know, we got to just stop this. He said, he said, God provided us with this rental property in Arcadia. That's a miracle in and of itself. You don't think that he can provide us with our own property in Arcadia? See, God, Cody was bringing a bucket. And I remember thinking, Cody's absolutely right, but that's impossible. It's just never going to happen. But he's right, so we quit looking outside of Arcadia. Six months later, we had negotiated a deal for this property. Absolutely fascinating. We need to bring God a bucket. Now, we should never presume upon God, but most of the time, we have no idea what he can really do. It reminds me of the benediction that Jude gives at the end of his short little letter. I call it a New Testament postcard in the New Testament. In the last two verses of his one-chapter postcard, he writes this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. That is soaring, isn't it? It's just soaring. God is able far more abundantly. Lose the thimble, bring a bucket. Verse 19, again, back to there. It says that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Not, I mean, fullness, now. That word jumps out at me. What is the fullness of God? What does that even mean? It's the idea, um, I think the idea of the fullness of God has something to do at least partially, if not fully, with the, with the complete absence of sin. And I want us to think, uh, now, slow down a little bit here. I want us to think a little bit about the nature of sin. Not the definition because those are two different things. I, I, I got the definition down. I know the line. Sin is what? Missing the mark. And, and that's a good definition. It's a true definition. Uh, the mark is God's holiness, and we miss that all the time. But the defini- that definition also misses the mark when we're trying to get at the nature of sin. What is it about sin that makes it so pervasive, inescapable, and saturating? Uh, the great church father Augustine describes sin as something that's done in word, deed, or desire that, that violates or misses God's law. And in that particular case, uh, Augustine meant God's law as his perfect and holy nature. And yes, we get that. Again, it's, it's starting to get at the nature of sin. It doesn't go all the way. We get that. Sin is adultery, it's lying, it's idolatry, it's stealing, it's playing poker and going to R-rated movies just in case you were one... No, I'm kidding. But that still doesn't get at it. That's a list of what sin is. It's not talking about the nature. Let me propose this. 
The nature of sin is that which opposes the fullness of God, and the fullness of God in this case means his goodness, holiness, grace, mercy, and compassion. Sin is opposed to God's fullness, and the fullness God has for us in Jesus Christ, including our redemption and our salvation. That's what sin is. It's opposed to anything that has to do with with God. Sin opposes this fullness because in its nature, sin disrupts, it fragments, it divides, it corrodes, it corrupts, it sucks on, and it disintegrates all that is good. In fact, here's the key to the nature of sin. Here's the key to the nature of sin. Sin cannot exist without good. Sin cannot exist without good. If there was no good, no fullness of God, sin would have nothing to blow apart, nothing to disrupt, and nothing to attach itself to. Uh, Think of it like this. Sin is a parasite. Sin is cancer. Sin needs a host. Sin latches onto the host until the host dies. And when the host dies, that's when sin finally dies because it doesn't have anything living itself onto. That's the futility of sin. It is always destined for death. That's its nature. Its nature is is one of death. One way or another, it's going to die. Think about the irony of this. If sin wins, it dies. How's that for irony? If sin wins, it dies. Sin's desire, sin desires to corrupt the good But it needs the good to do its parasitical, cancerous thing of corruption. You think about Genesis 3, when the adversary came, all he wanted to do was blow apart that which was good. It was good, it was perfect, it was paradise in the Garden of Eden. And and the adversary just couldn't have that. Sin had to attach itself in some way to the goodness that was there. And, And think about how sin corrupts anything that might have the potential for good. Greed corrupts wealth. We live in a culture that a lot of people want to demonize wealth as if wealth were uh, an animated being or, or, or a personification of some sort. That's just silly. There's nothing evil about wealth, but greed corrupts wealth. Sin can corrupt wealth. Pride corrupts authority. Lust corrupts marriage. Gluttony corrupts food. Covetousness corrupts ownership. Gossip and slander corrupt the imago Dei, the image of God. Idolatry corrupts communion with God. Again, Augustine describes it this way, and I think this is helpful. He describes humanity as a beautiful, fine, delicate porcelain doll. And sin cracks and breaks the doll. Jesus restores the doll. And and Jesus doesn't just restore the doll. He makes the doll new as if it had never been broken in the first place. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of Jesus. Sin is evil, but for for, for evil to exist, there must be good. For evil uh, to exist, evil needs the good. But here's the funny thing. Good does not need evil to exist. Have you ever thought about that? Good doesn't need evil to exist. But evil desperately needs good in order to exist. That's the nature of sin. Evil gets all of its energy, all of its purpose, all of its mojo from goodness. 
And that's why sin needs to be defeated and put away, opposed, crushed, and destroyed. And that's why Jesus came. Can you see how being filled with the goodness and the fullness of God by the beautiful redemptive work of Jesus is good news? Now, this prayer that we've been looking at these last two weeks, these eight verses, is this a celebration of what God does or is it trust in what he can do? It's both. It's, a, it's trust and it's celebration. You heard that in the prayers that were prayed last week during the service. Because of, uh, of who God is and what he does, because it's all trustworthy, we can celebrate. It's interesting. People talk all the time. I run into this quite often about revival. We need a revival. The church needs a revival. What are we going to do about having a revival? We got to get together and have a revival. We need to plan a revival. And when I was in seminary, of course, we studied historically the revivals from the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th uh, centuries and all the tents and the shows and the events of all the big uh, revivals. And of course, uh, Louis Zamperini, the, the subject of Laura Hillenbrand's magnificent book, Unbroken, he credits Billy Graham revivals for his salvation. But is revival really our thing? Doesn't it sound like we're in charge of revival, that we need to do? Is revival really our thing? Or is it a celebration and trust of who God is and what he can do? Uh, Revival cannot be manufactured, and it shouldn't be manufactured, because then it's dependent upon the manufacturing methodologies of the people doing it, and that's a house of cards. But we can pray for it to happen, and we can be open for it to happen, and we can praise God when it does happen. There's, there's a guy that lived in the 19th and 20th century. His name was Rodney Smith. His nickname was Gypsy. Some people know him as Gypsy Smith. That's literally his nickname. He, he was a famous revivalist, and I put that in quotes, in the late 19th and early 20th century. He was also a lecturer at Harvard University and is said to have crossed the Atlantic in the 19th and early 20th century 45 times in order to be able to preach at revivals. Someone once asked him what revival is, and here's his answer. I take a piece of chalk and I draw a circle around me, and I ask God to revive everything inside the circle. That's true revival. That's true revival. You look at verse 20, according to the power at work within us. Again, Paul just keeps tipping his hat to the fact that, that it's his power. And what's beautiful, I think, about this verse is, is that this verse actually gets to the fact that we are partakers with God. In verse 6, we saw that we are partakers with one another in the church community, but this also reminds us that we are partakers with God. We get to be in ministry with God, empowered by God. And then, and then look at verse 21 again. It's up there on, on, on the board. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, we all ask and think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Th that word glory, 
Um, some of you know this because you've heard this preached many times. Others of you, I just think it's revelatory. The word glory in, in Greek literally means heavy or weight, weightiness. God is heavy. There's a presence, there's a weightiness to God that we can't comprehend and that we can never reproduce. And that weightiness, that glory is in the church. It's in his church. It's here all the time. We invite God to come in. He's here anyway. We need to remember that. Our problem, frankly, in America is that we've made church a consumer product. We've, we've, church is where we go to get our spiritual goods and services, and then we, we shop churches and we, we, we measure them against each other and we read Yelp reviews. That's not what church is. We're not another, we're not another store at the mall. We're not an organization. We're a faith community. We're more like a family. How easy is it for you to enter or exit a family? That's the way it should be at church. That's the way God calls us and describes the church in His, in his Word. God has given His bride the task of proclaiming His manifold wisdom to everyone that Christ died for our sins and reconciled us to God, others, ourselves, and creation. Uh, on my break, here you go, I'm on my break, I was reading the, the Westminster, West, Westminster Confession of Faith. And, and this is what it says about the church. And you, those of you who are note takers, please, put, put, just do me a favor, put your pens down and just listen to this. You can, you can find this on the internet. Just listen to this. This is what the church is. The Catholic, small c, that word Catholic means universal. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof and is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him, of Jesus. The visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, that's a reference to Israel, consists of all those throughout, throughout the world that profess the true faith and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Unto this visible church, Christ has given the ministry, oracles, and ordinances of God for the gathering and perfecting of the saints in this life to the end of the world and does by his own presence and spirit, according to his promise, make them effectual. Does this sound like a consumer product to you? Unto this visible church, Christ has given this ministry and the oracles. This church has been sometimes more and sometimes less visible. And particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure according to the doctrine of the gospel that is taught and embraced, the ordinances administrated, and the public worship performed more or less purely in them. The purest churches under heaven are subject to both uh, both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ at all, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. 
There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? We should be reminded of that constantly because our desire is to take church and make it into something that it's not. And the one that he's, the the, the confession talks about, this last line, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Far more abundantly. Have you experienced far more abundantly? The work of God in your life far more abundantly, far more exceedingly than all you have asked or can think? Uh, Tom was up here talking about prison ministry. I've been doing it for about 18 years, um, going into prisons and working with alongside ministry. And there are a couple of guys that I've developed really long-term relationships with, and one of them is Joe Camara. He's been in for 20 years. I've known him for 18. I've only known him in orange. That's the only way I know him. Uh, I remember when Charlie, who attends uh, Redemption Arcadia now, when he got out after 17 years, I had known him for 15 years. Um, when he got out, it was the first time I had seen him in any apparel other than orange. It kind of freaked me out, you know. Um, Joe has a little less than four years to go, and I write him, and I visit him, and and we've become very, very good friends. I want to read an excerpt from a letter I received from him just in in, uh, April this year. And by the way, I want you to hear this. It's amazing how some of the things in the letter may touch some of the stuff that's going on in our culture today with the NFL and with the shootings in in the schools. Um, This was written weeks ago before any of that happened, so just take it in its own context here. But I want you to to hear Joe's um, just soaring celebration about what God is doing. I was talking to my mom yesterday. They, They call occasionally. They get 15 minutes for a phone call. I was talking to my mom yesterday, and I asked her if she had checked my son's Facebook page recently to see if there was any updated activity. Joe has not seen his son for 20 years, okay? He's an adult now. Is there any updated activity? She used to check up on him regularly, but he went more than a year without posting anything new. It made me worry a little, thinking something may have happened to him. So anyway, she goes to his page while I'm on the phone with her, and lo and behold... There is new activity over the past few months. She said there is a new picture of him with his wife and daughter. Awesome. Plus, he had some new quotes posted. Now, understand, these are Joe's words, not mine. I noticed before that most of the quotes he posted sounded something like a redneck would have on a bumper sticker. Cheesy, patriotic gun quotes like, you'll have to take my gun from my cold, dead hands, etc., etc., I know he was in the Air Force for four years, which I really appreciate. So he's big on the military and patriotism, and he is certainly outspoken about the flag. But he had a new posting that caught both of our attentions. It said, I will stand for the flag, but will kneel at the cross. Oh, Lord, let it be true. He wrote that all in caps with exclamation points. Oh, Lord, let it be true. And then listen to this. I have blindly prayed for the last 20 years that my son would know Jesus. I've even gone so far as to pray that he would know Jesus over ever knowing me. I don't want him to miss that appointment with Jesus in this life. When mom read me that quote, it was like a little nudge and a wink from God saying, 
I got this. Keep praying. Keep hoping. God's got this. Keep praying. Keep hoping. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the work that you do in our lives, which is far more abundant, exceedingly far beyond anything that we can think or imagine. God, we just pray that somehow we would be able to submit everything that we have to that reality, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've... uh,